Hey guys, welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 1, The Texas Killing Fields, Episode 8. In this episode, we are going to bring to you Brooks Bracewell and Georgina Gear. And before we get started, we did have a few comments on the last episode. So because of the brutality um, in the killing of Joanne Knighton, there have been some talk and comments considering... Is it a personal cause homicide? And what does it really take to physically stab somebody that many times? Gretchen, um, what are your thoughts on that? So, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of the comments too were like, do you really think this is related to the Texas killing fields because of, because of the brutality of this? And, you know, part of me thinks that, that her homicide is a personal cause homicide and so it would be you know and because it would be a personal cause homicide then i think you know we'd have to say no it's probably not part of the um texas killing fields because we have had other personal cause homicides that we haven't covered for that same reason you know that um we had one just a just like two weeks ago that, you know, we spent a lot of time researching and just decided that, you know, these were people that she knew. They were very early on identified and convicted of the killing. Her case was solved. I think that's what makes right Joanne's this, case so unique. Even if it is a personal cause homicide, it's not solved. Right. Joanne's case is not solved. And that has been one of the big things here, too, is that we we have always felt like if the cases aren't solved, we needed to try to at least cover them to give the family some, some possibility of somebody bringing information forward. Um, and just to keep, keep that name out there that this poor individual's case has not been solved. So that was one of the reasons that we decided to cover it Two, We are going to cover some other solved cases in this, but in those solved cases, we think that there may possibly be the person who did them might have done another case. So that's kind of the second reason that we do feel like sometimes we will cover ones that are solved. There's some information or some bit of speculation out there that it was a relative who was giving her a ride that day. You know, one of the other things, though, when we were looking at her death certificate and we were trying to track down where she lived compared to where she was found, right? And and it was difficult, but we were looking at she's living off of Galveston Road and then she's found off of Jefferson, right? Which both of those at that time seemed to be in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if she... I don't know where this whole thing came about, about she was headed to her sisters, you know, but I'm wondering if she really was headed to her sisters. Me too. And you know, the one thing I keep telling you that I may not have voiced publicly mm -hmm. is it almost seems like a bad cover up to me, you know, like, like maybe there's some information out there or maybe it's just been swept under the rug for whatever reason. I don't know, but well, and I think that that's where people are kind of speculating out there about, you know, this information to say that it was a relative, you know, is, is that kind of like, maybe that's why it was never solved is, is if it was a relative, you know, then maybe the rest of the family didn't want it to be solved. 
I, I know it's tough. I know it's tough. I know I'll put it out there. I know I threw you off with that, but just, you know, I, I don't think that you can, I don't think you can ever say, no, that's not a possibility on any of these cases because we, we have to keep an open mind of it. Why aren't these cases solved? What is going on? So I think there's a, a possibility that it, it has to be laid out there on the table. I, I really look at it as the, to me, the proximity that of where she was, where she lived and where she was found. I look at that and I think to myself, that's probably because whoever did this to her lived in the same apartment complex as her. Not necessarily a relative, but somebody who lived in the same apartment complex because it doesn't seem like it's a far amount of way away. Sure. Which for a while, and one of one of the people that, you know, made a comment said 61 stab wounds, you know, first of all, they said what that's I mean, have you that's tried crazy. with your arm up and down that right. many times? They're like you would get and you're hitting bone, right? right? But one of the interesting things in kind of doing that play was they didn't think that it could be done in a car. Yeah. Yeah. That was, you know, something. that you have so little room and, and, you know, you you're really be hitting the ceiling yeah, right? um, or the roof of the car. Now it's, it's not like we went out and kind of played that out or, or did that, but I thought it was a good, good, good thought, you know, that the difficulty in that type of, Close. brutality mm -hmm. in that close of an environment you know i mean you said you know and nobody would notice their car looked like that and so you know that or no wounds on their body right i mean so i certainly think whoever did this injured themselves in some way and i will i will put that out there again that some sort of DNA testing has to be done on whatever evidence there is left. And my hope is that the shirt is, is still in evidence. Right. Um, because I cannot imagine that you can do that type of brutality to somebody and not have injured yourself in some way. Even if it's a drop of sweat, because I would think that would be quite the workout. Right. You know, just to repeatedly do that, flip them over, do their face or mm -hmm. whatever you're doing in, in in that time span it would it right. have taken less than five minutes to do something like that honestly. it couldn't it couldn't with adrenaline you yeah, never with know rage. but but I it mean, did bring me back to kind of thinking along the lines of because i really always originally when i read this kind of thought the car I have, I have thought that from reading through this for a while, but when, when that person said that, I thought, oh, maybe not, maybe, maybe, you know, she went to see somebody at, at, at their apartment or, you know, a house nearby or something like that. But the, so the proximity has certainly, you know, we, we've looked at that death certificate. One of the things that I've told you about that death certificate though, is it does appear that that's information given to the coroner by her father on the phone. And so how distraught he was, they've talked about him being very distraught in other articles and stuff. So thinking about how distraught he was, that location of where her body was, was found may be off a bit too, but that's the information that we have to go off of at this time. It could be off a bit. I mean, even if it was in the same area, I would uh -huh. think hopefully they did somewhat of a search. I don't know, we've yeah. talked about you know, diameters and football yeah. fields and searches and stuff. But I mean, that kind of, that kind of, I mean, there'd be 
a lot of blood. I know we said that before, but so I, you know, I certainly appreciate, you know, the, the listening audience that we have kind of talking to us and talking through that. Um, you know, again, I, uh, anything that we can do to bring, bring any sort of pressure on the, um, on the police department who has her case, which if the death certificate is correct though, then Pasadena has her case. Right. So, I mean, that is, that is the one thing that I will tell you is that if the information on the death certificate is correct about the location that her body was found and where she lived then Pasadena should have this case. Mm -hmm. And so I would question Pasadena on why it's not on the website with the other unsolved cases. Mm-hmm. So because there is an unsolved case that is only a few, there are two unsolved cases on their website that is that are only like a couple of years after this one. And so why is it that this case isn't out there on there asking for information? Okay. So, but I think we're going to get started on Brooks Bracewell and Georgina Gear. And so... In, again, I, to tell all of our viewers, if you have any questions or comments, you know, let us know. We certainly love hearing from anybody. Thank you very much for the few comments that we did get. So on September 6, 1974, was a normal school day when uh, Brooks Bracewell who was 12 years old and Georgina Gear, who were 14 years old, arrived at the bus stop to go to school. And before the bus arrived, the two of them decided to skip school and hang out for the day. Their uh, friends and siblings got on the bus, but uh, Brooks and Georgina didn't. Little is known about what happened during the day, during the daytime hours, what they did um, they probably, you know, played back and forth, went to the store, um, just kind of had a free day. Um, Georgina is wearing orange and Brooks is wearing a gold sweater and bell bottom pants, obviously kind of dressed in order to go to school that day. They, what is known is that later on in the afternoon after school was out, they showed up at a local hotel slash bar near I-45 called the El Rancho. They were there with other school friends playing pool, having a good time. There were other men in the bar at the time, but they pretty much left the teenagers alone, kind of let them play pool, hang out, chit chat. It wasn't like there were other men who were coming over and involved in what was, what was going on. It was more that the kids were kind of all together. There is nothing known about the men who were at the bar that day or, or very, very little. Um, but the girls decided to head home. They, um, A friend who was there at the time didn't have enough room for them in the car, and they were walking home. They were pretty much a short distance from home. It wouldn't have been an incredibly long walk from them for them. There are some reports that come out and say they were trying to hitchhike home. Um, Other reports say that they also stopped and kind of played football with some young men who were playing, but those males never ever came forward to say anything about the girls. And then at that point in time, it isn't until they don't return home that night that uh, their parents call and report them missing. 
um, because this area is in Dickinson, at the time, Dickinson was much smaller than what it is today. And, um, and so Dickinson um, did not have a police department. So it was the Galveston County Sheriff's Department that came out and took the missing person's report from the parents of both Georgina and Brooks. And at the time, the, um, the officers who are taking the reports refer to them quite often as girls who have run away. They'll just show back up and actually had said something to the parents to the fact that it was probably the Georgina girl who had convinced Brooks to run away with her. You know, Georgina, I guess, being a little bit older, they assumed that she would have influenced the 12 year old into running away. The parents were adamant. These kids did not run away. They only had the clothes that they had with them that day. They didn't have any money with them. They didn't leave any notes. They didn't tell their brothers or sisters that they were very close to, that they were leaving or thinking about running away or, you know, um, anything like that. It's just because they had skipped school, they were treated like runaways. And then so the parents are the ones who are left to their own devices of trying to figure out what to do. Um, so they basically made handmade signs and put them up in businesses all over town. Yeah. So when you told me that bit of the research too, I was like, well, thank God they did something right. Because I'm always like, why are the parents not doing anything? But obviously they were doing what they knew to do. Well, so and I think what we they weren't at, accepting the police saying they're runaways. No, I mean no. that that does tell us that, right? Which brings me some comfort into that. But you know, and unfortunately, the uh, newspaper—I mean, the um, the report on their disappearance—is roughly less than a paragraph. You know, it's it's a guy going out and getting a vague description of each girl and their age, and then basically writing up saying I I went to this home on such and such time they reported to me that the 12 and 14 year old were missing this is what they're wearing and that's it that is so disappointing too you know that that's what it boiled down to is paragraph maybe right in a report and you know it's not like you didn't have any reason to be suspicious in in 1974, in this area, that something... When you have a murder cluster, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> that something could have happened to them. You know, they're not the... They're actually not the first nor the second group of girls that went missing in Galveston County in just a few short years. So this is, this is not, like, incredibly unusual that this could happen. Um... Unfortunately, the the Bracewell family, you know, this was very difficult on them. Um, you know, their close knit family kind of broke up shortly after this. You know, um, and I mean, this is just devastating. And then, so we hear from the police a little bit later on, right? We so, do, because the Harris County is requesting dental records. So Harris County in about three months later stumbles mm -hmm. upon the fact that, you know, they have these two missing girls. And 
I think, you know, one of the reasons that Harris County got interested was that Harris County had other missing uh, girls too. And so they were putting it together. And so Harris County requested from the parents, the dental records of the children saying, just in case they show up dead somewhere, we need to have those dental records, which is such so negative to think that that actually happened, but it does lead to us to eventually them being identified. Right. Um, because in, so in 1976, um, a man who's working, um, on one of the oil fields, um, stumbles across the, uh, skulls of both of these girls in a culvert off a bayou. And he calls the sheriff's department. He's an actually Alvin. So Alvin would have been, Miles, yeah, that's what they said. About ten miles away, Mm -hmm. so he stumbles across these uh, skulls. um, Calls the sheriff's department, reports that he has these skulls. Galveston County Sheriff's Department comes out, um, picks them up, and then makes a report. And then that's it. Crickets. (laughs) Galveston County really doesn't do a whole lot to find out you know, where these remains belong. Um, well, there was never really an investigation to begin with. No, there I mean, they right. really didn't look into anything. But you, what you have to remember is that we do have missing girls in the Houston area and other areas, surrounding areas around this time period. And so when you have two skulls, even though you're not thinking to yourself, oh, let me look at the possible runaway cases that we just kind of shoved under the carpet and do anything with, you know, when you have that, still you have, you have other cases that are in the surrounding areas and you don't do anything with the fact that you have two skulls from at the time, what you're assuming are young, possibly teenage boy or teenage girls, you know, um, so, but they just, the remains just kind of remain. And so eventually there's a little bit of a change at the sheriff's department. Um, the, now it's, it's Brazoria County because they're found in Alvin. And so Brazoria County is the one who's in charge of that now. And there's some changes at the sheriff's department in Brazoria County. And they fall under the, on the, fall on the desk. The, the, um, the case gets turned over to a detective called Matt Wingo. And, um, in all fairness, a little bit, he's the hero of the story. Right. Because he then says, wait a second, you know, we need to do some more investigations here. And he gets together a large team of investigators and actually gets people from um, searchers from the correctional institution to go and search that field, to do a very, very thorough search of that field. And in that search, they come up with articles of clothing. They come up with uh, the jawbone. And so there um, and more bones during that search. And also during that, they just, they decide that the cause of death for these two individuals would have been blood force trauma to the head. So uh, it's, is suspected. I mean, there could have possibly been, it looks like blood force trauma. We cannot rule out the fact that they could have possibly been shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he does that, but also Fort Worth police get involved in that. Right. 
And when you told me that, I was like, Fort Worth. I mean, that's Dallas. Right. You know, that's. But Fort Worth had three missing girls from a shopping mall in Fort Worth that they thought there was a possibility. Their names are uh, Mary Rochelle, Trilica, Lisa Renee Wilson, and Julie Ann Mosley. These three went missing on December 23rd, 1974 from a shopping mall in Fort Worth. And so when Fort Worth kind of gets tied into the fact that they have these two skulls down at Alvin, Fort Worth says, hey, we want to be part of this and, and see if these can possibly um, link up to our case. So really at the time that that happens in 1981, when they go out, it's actually March 28, 1981, when they go out and discover more of these remains, um, everybody's leaning toward the fact that they're thinking that this is going to be these Fort Worth teenage girls. They actually have contacted the parents in Fort Worth and talked to them and, and told them that, you know, ask request dental records and, you know, got them kind of prepared for the fact that they believed that these remains were going to be theirs. Um, it wasn't until they were ruled out that they started to look at what, who else was missing in the area. And what was surprising to me is they're saying there's between 20 and 40 missing yeah. girls. So that they, <clears throat> that felt was like, then that's, that's then. then. Right. <laughs> and for us, one of the surprising things, for us is, you know, since we've 40. done all this research, well, and we don't have 20, we don't, yeah, not, not yeah. up until 1981. And so, you know, now when I look at what they're looking at, they're certainly looking at from Fort Worth down on. So, you know, and it could include males, right? At mm -hmm. that time it could have. So, you know, um, so they're, they're including from Fort Worth down on through, um, you know, Conroe, that area there, all of the Houston area, and then this area. So that may be why, you know, we have such a, a large range. But somehow they, you know, because Galveston has this case of these two, you know, what they still at that time referred to as runaways. I, I think that's what pisses me off the most about these two period right from what we have known up until this point from the 71 you know some of these girls have been treated as runaways right some of them have not outcome is the same right death and kidnapping right why do you treat them as runaways because they skip school sometimes kids do that but that mm -hmm. doesn't mean they deserve that label right so you just don't do an investigation I mean, or maybe you hold off a few days hoping that maybe they'll turn up. Maybe I'll give you that. Maybe. But after a week, you don't tune in to say, hey, we need to do more. Right. And when you go back three months later, three whole months later. Three months. And you still find out that these girls are missing and nobody has heard from them. It, it gets you one line in the report. After... All the activity that's gone on prior. Right. And that's, that's, that's what's it for me. That's what's stunning to me is that, I mean, your Galveston County Sheriff's Department, you had to be under a rock. Um, right? Because Galveston County is large. Right. But they're still there. It is still in the database. Right. It's and in the database. It's, it, 
it's really all over. I mean, we don't even, I mean, we can name their names. You had Colette Wilson, you had Brenda Jones, you had Rhonda Johnson, you had Sharon Shaw, you had Gloria Gonzalez, you had Allison Craven, Debbie. Debbie Ackerman, Marie Johnson. Up until that point, you know, you, you had Mildred, Joanne Knightley, and Kimberly Pitchford before you ever get to this point. Mm -hmm. You know, and all of this, other than a few, doesn't are say a alarm bell, alarm bell, alarm bell. Like seriously, at the very least, and all of them are in Galveston County. Other than a few, Galveston or Brazoria County. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, which I don't know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and I mean, but that's saying like, you know, 2004, half of it's in Galveston, the other half's Brazoria, same area. Right. You might as well say. And then, so, just, so I think this, this investigator does his best to try to go back and piece things together and like try to figure out where the girls are. And really the piece that we get from this, you know, where these girls are were the information that we get of where they were comes from that investigation but one of the things you know that comes in is is as you're trying to trying to search for this now you have um some reference to the possibility that they may have been using a payphone and stuff so but you you don't have any of that in this missing persons report that happens the day that they go missing you don't have an investigator who goes out and talks to friends and says hey did you see them that day you know so you have nobody who is talking well, the to day they were missing they didn't even they literally right. said they're runaways right we'll take a report in 48 hours so you have nobody who's talked to at the at the el rancho later they go back and you get the report that there were people at the el rancho you know that day I just wondered if how accurate. If they weren't even supposed to be there, though, think about age limits. If they were in their playing pool and it was supposed to be at that time, let's say 16 and older, mm -hmm. right? Because you could drink at 18 then, I think, you know? Okay. So now they know they're minors. How many people are going to talk? I just. Days thought, later. Days well, later. Okay. But it's not even days later. So you're talking about. 1981 is when the investigation finally starts for these two. So they disappeared in 1974, and then you start investigating in 1981. I'm sorry, if six years later you asked me who was in the bar? Unless there was something striking about an individual, they were weird, the or only thing they said something to me, or, you know, they asked me for something. Right. I mean, you wouldn't remember. The only thing that I can think of is that the reason that maybe some of these memories you know, some of these people did remember certain things is because the parents actually did that investigation. So the parents would have put up the posters, the parents would have done all of that. And so those, if you saw the missing persons report from the parents the next day, you would have some sort of memory. Oh, I remember seeing those girls, you know, but again, like, six years later, I still think to myself, you know, that's, that's difficult to think how, how good your memory would be because now the posters are gone, you know, now, you know, the, the families are really decimated at this point. And, um, and that's, it's unfortunate. And so it is unfortunate. Right. And not surprisingly, this case goes cold. 
It's just unfortunate, really. So before we ended, just because we brought in the Rachel to Lisa, uh, Lisa Renee Wilson and Julianne Mosley case out of Fort Worth, we just wanted to give a little information on that case, even though it's in no way connected to here. Um, just because since we talked about it, you know, I think people might be curious a little bit about what happened there. So um, the girls in December of 1974, uh, around noon, go to the shopping mall. And what it is, is it's uh, Rachel Trilisa, who is 17 years old. She's married. She's friends with Lisa Renee uh, Wilson, who's 14 years old. And um, as they're getting ready to go, Julianne Mosley, who lives across the street, who's nine years old, is like, oh, please take me with you. You know, she wanted to go. And so um, they say, you know, if you can get your parents' permission, we'll go ahead and take you with us. They go to the mall in Fort Worth there, which is now called the Fort Worth Center Mall, but it had a different name at the time. They go to the mall, they're doing a little Christmas shopping. They go to the army supply store to pick up gifts that were on layaway. They're driving an Oldsmobile. The Oldsmobile, when they don't return home, they are reported missing. At the time, the police do say, well, they probably ran away. But then the Oldsmobile is located in the parking lot of the mall. No sighting of the girls. Um, and they're never seen again at that point in time. Um, the police do for a short period of time consider this case to be a missing, I mean, a runaway case, but I think with the parent pressure and the oddity of the fact that you have a 17 year old, a 14 year old and a nine year old who wasn't known to both girls very well. So, you know, it's, it's not like she hung out with them very often. I think one of the girls she had actually just met that day. Um, it's, it's not like they hatched a plan to run away. Now, um, Rachel was married to Tommy. It was a, it was a young marriage that the two of them had. And, uh, certainly he probably would have been looked at as a suspect and has been, I'm thinking probably has been ruled out again. You know, you do have people, especially at that young age who will murder their young wife, but, when when you kind of add in the circumstances, it does seem a little odd. You have the the nine-year-old who's toting around. They were supposed to return at 4 p.m. that day because they were um, going to a holiday party. Two of the girls were going to a holiday party that night, so they wanted enough time to get ready. And again, you know, that, that still says to you they're probably not runaways. But the strange thing that does happen is a few days later – few days after they go missing, a letter shows up in the mail addressed to Tommy that says that um, it's from Rachel and she's, the letter claims that they're going to hang out in Houston for a while and then return. Both Rachel's mother and uh, Tommy say that it didn't look at all like her handwriting. Um, as detectives have tried to track it down in later years, it doesn't seem like it comes from the Houston area. And this is not the only place that they actually go to try to identify bodies that may have possibly been linked to the girls. Um, 
they went to this area. There's a couple other different areas that they have looked into, but each and every time it turns out that it is not, they're missing loved ones. And so this case still continues to remain cold. There are incidents that come forward a couple years after they went missing. Somebody came forward and said he had seen a van in the parking lot and a guy was trying to like push three girls into the van and that he stepped forward and said, you know, what's going on. And the guy said it was, um, it was a family argument, mind your own business. There was another reported sighting saying that the girls were in the security um, man's vehicle and um, that was investigated. The security man said that they were never in his vehicle at any point in time. Um, and then there was another report that they may have been in another truck uh, that they didn't look like they were or may have been somebody may have seen them being forced into a truck at some point. The one strange thing about these sightings is they do seem to come later, not, not right after the girls are missing, but shortly later. And so it does make you kind of wonder whether or not somebody kind of seeking some attention or maybe they did see something. And when they see something in the newspaper, then they think, Oh yeah, that must be what I saw. But, um, I don't know. You know, I know that the police looked pretty hard into the security officer. And I think, you know, for us, we wanted to just include a little bit of information about them. They are not related to any cases. As far as we know, they're not related to any cases that we have here. But we just thought because we mentioned them, people would be curious. There's a lot of information out there. Um, if you want to do your own research on them and stuff like that, but we you know, thought we should kind of include why that maybe officers thought this case, these missing, you know, these remains could possibly, you know, connect up there. And I think it was a good, a good thought, you know. Right. Um, well, and it also sounds like, you know, the police were trying any leads that they could. Right. They really didn't give up and just say they're just runaways and just gave up on that case. Mm -hmm. So that's the one thing that you know, kind of struck strikes me. And I them. know over the years that the families have hired private investigators and tried to find out more about this case. And, you know, this is again, another sad case. And it, it's odd. You know, when you think about, you know, when we talk about two girls getting into the car, you know, who possibly would be hitchhiking or needing a ride, not necessarily hitchhiking, but needing a ride. These are three girls who did not need a ride. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that car was there. <clears throat> you know, some of the presents you were, were locked in the car, which makes sense to me. You come out of the mall, you have your hands full of packages, you lock them into the car, and then you go back into the mall and go to a different store or something like that. So, you know, it does make sense that they probably might have dropped things off at some point in time. Sure. But, um, but they didn't need... They didn't need a person. Right. They didn't mm -hmm. need a person to, to give them a ride home or anything like that. And then when you add the fact that these are two girls who are now responsible for a nine-year-old, it just, it wouldn't make any sense to me that they would go with somebody they didn't necessarily know. The security guard thing to me does kind of make sense because you can see maybe, you know, needing the security guard's assistance, but 
I still feel like when well, maybe the security guard gave them a sense of like comfort and trust. Yeah, too, you yeah. know. Um, so I think that's always that's a viable lead, but it seems like police have really looked into that as as hopefully as well as possible. But we wanted to give you just a little information, and you know, again, thanks for joining us today. Our next episode will be uh, Nina Klug and Susie Bowers coming up hopefully next week. Bye. Bye.